0: Welcome to the podcast. Okay, this one was special. I had Siddharth and Atulia on for this one, both of who are doctors and longtime friends of mine. For the first time on this podcast, I had people who actually knew what they were talking about, actual experts in the field we were discussing. This was a pleasant surprise and I absolutely enjoyed our conversation. I also think that this episode would be valuable to almost anyone really, given the current state of things. Not surprisingly, we talk about COVID-19, we talk about when life might return to normal in air quotes, we talk about being prepared for future pandemics, we talk about AI in medicine, and much more. Without further delay, I bring you episode 6 of the podcast. Hey guys, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I know you two are really busy people and I appreciate you being on. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm hoping this one's going to be a really interesting one, uh, especially given the circumstances. So I was hoping that you guys could give the listeners a basic understanding of what this virus really is and how the coronavirus or uh, the strand that causes COVID-19 is different from a regular influenza virus.
2: Yeah. okay. So basically, it's just the same. It causes mm-hmm. regular symptoms like cough, fever, body pain. In some people, it's said to cause other atypical symptoms. It affects everybody. That's the, it's the common flu. The thing is that in any, in any person who has less uh, immunity, or he or she has either other comorbidities like diabetes or hypertension or any immune suppression like cancer or undergoing any treatment, he or she is affected more. Basically, uh, basically hmm. this affects your lungs, and people are said to say and it is said that uh, it reduces like your lung capacity, and you require a more intensive therapy after that.
0: So I've I've heard a lot of talk about strands and uh, like certain strands being more prevalent. In Europe and others being spread in New York and California, is there something different about the 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 virus, even from a geographical standpoint, or is it all the same?
1: Let me answer the question for you. The thing is that all viruses have multiple strands, and it's all because of mutation, right? Mm-hmm. So the general generally mutation is based on acclimatization to the conditions in which the virus has been put in. Okay. So the strands in Europe, the mother strand was the same thing, which was from Wuhan, which you all know, and maybe it had adapted differently in New York and differently in uh, European countries is what's my take on it. And that's how there are multiple strands of viruses anyway. And the main differentiating factor between a, a normal flu and COVID is the rate of contagiousness because like... A common fluke can spread from one person to another one person. But for mm. COVID, the ratio is 1.7.
0: Okay. So this is the R-naught value that everyone's talking about right now? Yeah. Okay. You say that a geographical location can have an effect on how the virus reacts to a certain person. Is uh, Yeah, it's not a
2: geographical location per se. It is how the virus mutates according to the person. It uh, affects basically Uh, the strand from the the original strand, the original virus which was started in Wuhan is not what we see in Italy. It's not what we see right now in India. There's a bit of mutation. There's Mm. not much of mutation is what uh, we've been hearing right now. That's Mm. why it's very difficult to find a vaccine for such a virus. It's constantly mutating.
0: Okay. Let's uh, talk a little about what the situation is in the places that you guys are in right now. So, how's the situation in India? How's the situation in my hometown, that
1: Okay, so as I work in a government setup, almost all cases which have a, even a small suspicion of COVID are sent here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, the biggest trouble which doctors here have are convincing patients that what you have is not COVID. <laughs> the panic is too high here. Hmm. And the reason of the, the panic is literacy. There's a sudden lockdown because there's a fe- there's a fever kind of illness going around, and anyone with fever thinks they have corona and they come here.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So the doctors have a very difficult time convincing them that they don't need a test because the problem in India actually is that we don't have we we are not having enough testing kits as other countries do. Mm-hmm. So we need to see which people re- really need the test. So that's why we had a, a criteria of travel history for a long time. Mm. So people only people with travel history had to be tested. But over the course now that we have a, a more testing kits, yet the testing has improved quite a bit. But still, the cases have not increased due to the lockdown. I, I believe.
0: So that's uh, so it's some good news here. How, uh, what about you, Atulia? Um,
2: basically, uh, we don't have much of a problem in Kerala per se. Because they were quick mm-hmm. to react to this uh, to the emergency rather, um, and I work in a private setup, so we do not have the uh, authority of the government to have COVID cases in our hospital. So we mm-hmm. generally, what we had to do was screen all our patients basically at all entry points of the hospital. We used to ask them for their travel history and any symptomatology, because we know the COVID hotspots in and around the entire state.
0: So it looks like. Uh- it started off with uh, tracing people through travel history, and now it has uh, kind of migrated back into uh, looking for symptomatic carriers. From what uh, Siddarth is saying, is is that also uh, reflected in Kerala, or are they still do- going off of travel history?
2: Kerala has traced almost everybody, and there are so many people in home quarantine currently, even now. Hmm. Uh, our home quarantine criteria has moved up to thirty days after you're after you've come to uh india so i think you're doing a pretty good job at that kerala
0: okay so from what i'm hearing it looks like at least uh from from the perspective of a person living in the u.s it does look like india has uh, dealt with this issue at a much faster rate and have responded way quicker and more effectively than the u.s my fear really was that uh the population density in India was going to make it really hard. But uh, hearing from you guys has made me more optimistic. And yeah, I think we're headed in the right direction. As India goes, Uh, do you guys uh, feel the same?
2: Yeah, it looks like that. Definitely.
1: The thing is that the Indian crowd is a very scary, scared crowd. Mm. They act like they are offender this, but deep (laughs) down, they're scared of everything. So when the government said that if you come out, you will die, people really thought something big is going on and they stayed home. It's a very big thing which contributed to the better progress of India in this crisis.
0: And another thing that I feel is worth mentioning here, at least comparing the United States and India, I feel like there's a lot of lot more respect for, uh, for science in India, at least uh, compared to the US. There's, there just seems to be almost a a militant disagreement with anything scientific in the US, like there's just a lot of people who are against uh, institutionalized science, especially because universities and science has kind of been associated with the political left in the last few decades in the US. So it's, it's become more partisan than it should be. And I don't see that problem as much in india i feel like a lot of people if if there's enough uh, science to back something up will believe it and the us seems to have a huge problem convincing people about facts and uh, i think that's a, that's a big problem in society in general uh, and i feel that that's happening more in, in in the developed world compared to countries like india but yeah that, i think that's uh stacking the top topic slightly off of where i want it to be but i'd really want to get into uh the future of things and where where and when we can uh, decide that it's safe for us to go back to our normal lives uh what what would you guys put down as key markers as to when it's safe to go back to living a normal life post covid
2: Okay, so basically, to be very honest, I think to return to how it was before, we need a vaccine to come out, basically. Because there is uh, if people are allowed to move freely, if all the transportation starts once again, people are allowed to move between districts, between states and inter-countries, there might be a second wave of COVID. Mm. And uh, Kerala um, primarily is preparing for a second wave uh, very intensively, to be very honest, they are just watching out for all the signs, and with all the uh, expatriates being coming from the Gulf countries to Kerala, they are actually anticipating a second wave. So, for all things to return to normal, to going out and eating at restaurants, to going to movie theaters, to having fun together, to uh, get together, I think you'd have to wait for a vaccine. Yeah.
0: And like okay. Most people are saying is that eighteen months from now would that be an accurate number? Uh,
2: actually, no. Um, there are nineteen contenders for a vaccine currently, mm-hmm. and the top contender is uh, the vaccine produced from being produ- being uh, uh, being tried out at Ox uh, being uh, in, at Oxford University. Uh, they already reached their stage three clinical trials, and around um, and all and and simultaneously, they are being mass produced in India, actually, at at this point of time. So they're expecting, if the trials go successfully, they're expecting vaccines to be out by September 2020,
0: actually. So well, that's that's good news, and that you had some input there.
1: Yeah, actually, the my thought is that it's going to take exactly like, like about 18 months to have, come back to like normal life, as you say, with the air quotes, because mm. I think. Life will return, but it would be with restrictions. It would be with face masks, wearing, people wearing face masks every day, people going out, maintaining social distancing. but returning back to normal would take a really long time mm. because even if there's a, even if there's a vaccine, we cannot say that there will never not be one new case a day, right We can never so, say that, we can never say that there are no cases of COVID in, in the
0: world ever again
1: yeah because to eradicate our disease is too big a task
0: yes it's it's taken decades for us right to get um a few of those out, so the quickest one that comes to mind is polio, and that Small that time. took us yeah it's yeah and how how long did that take us so I think that leads conveniently to my to my next question: is that really our goal with covid nineteen is 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 it a realistic goal to try and wipe out the disease before we ever, uh, you know, go back to normal life? Or who decides if the risk or the number of patients affected in the world is low enough that uh, we can go back to being who we were? So let's say 10% of the population uh, can be affected with covid and we can still co- continue uh, operations as normal. I think 10% is a huge number, but uh, you get what I'm trying to say. It's like, will there be a stage in the future where, where you could pass off on a certain number of people being sick because there's just no realistic way to get that number down to zero?
2: I'd agree with you, actually. There's no realistic way to get the number to zero at all. In the, in the near future, at least, the next two years. Mm. Uh, I think that at least when the affected people are less than 10 percent of the population and we have enough cure and we have enough vaccines or enough healthcare professionals to look after those sick people, I think it's time for life to turn to normal rather. Instead of waiting for the entire virus to get eradicated, that's not going to be possible anyhow or any time I see. Mm.
0: And what do you think, Siddharth? The
1: okay, the thing about a pandemic is that it's a disease and it's not just like something which happens seasonally or ha- happens only that one year, like we still have case of plague, we still have case of Spanish flu, we still have case of the re- recent epidemic of chikungunya. Even though mm. it's not a very big uh, like thing to talk about, there are still cases and we, still, we know how to treat them now. The thing mm. is we just need to have the technical knowledge to treat these kinds of cases. When we know how to treat a case with COVID, I think it will be easier to... on from there.
0: Mm. So I think I'm playing devil's advocate here, but from the mortality rates that we are seeing around the world, would you not agree that we do kind of know how to treat COVID? Yeah, we don't have a vaccine, but there are diseases out there that have a higher mortality rate than COVID. So why is the reason that this disease, COVID-19, has forced the entire world to go down into lockdown, uh, and other diseases have not. Is this uh, pointing back to the R0 number that you talked about, or is it just because uh, it's a new disease?
1: Exactly. This is because of the contingency factor, Mm. because any other disease which kills uh, mostly non-communicable, talking about diabetes, hypertension, or any other heart diseases, which we say have a higher death rate than COVID, Mm. are all non-communicable. This is the mm. first case of like a disease which spread from person to person to create such a mortality. Mm. In recent in recent past recent history with a heavier media involvement in day-to-day life, which is a very important part of this pandemic being a being seen seeing seeing bigger than it is actually.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so Elon Musk is definitely wrong. <laughs> of course he's wrong. <laughs> okay. So Let's switch topics and go on to something a little more philosophical, I feel. And this is an argument that's, uh, that's a raging debate, at least in the United States. Um, where do you think the line is drawn between economic do- downfall and catastrophe and saving someone's life? So this has been a huge debate in the United States, saving the economy versus uh, saving lives of thousand people. And to me, it seems like a no brainer, like as long as uh, some part of the economy is functional and people have basic necessities, the the priority has to be human life. But there has been a lot of points that have been made from the other side that I think are worth considering. Like for example, um, you cannot have people on daily labor uh, who are not, not effectively supported by government and they're, they're just going to starve to death, essentially, if uh, they don't have uh, any other means of income. So there's a lot of fear about increased criminal uh, activity, increased theft, uh, violence. Where do you think? the line has to be drawn is should it be completely on the government to take care of the people economically in 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 this time or do you think there's a better way to deal with it
1: okay i think the line comes when the economy cannot support the healthcare care hmm. do you understand do you me because the country's economy is the country's healthcare is almost dependent on the health, country's economic status only if the country has money to provide medications or uh, whatever facilities needed to provide healthcare, will there be healthcare?
0: Okay. I, I, so-
1: I, I'm, I'm not talking on an individual basis, but I'm talking about as the government in whole. As long as the government can fund medical work and medical research about this pandemic, I think they can go on doing this. When and if a time comes when the government cannot pay money for the healthcare providers, cannot ha- provide money for the healthcare workers, then we think about. Letting people die and having the, having the economy grow back. Mm.
0: But what about the people who are not sick and don't know where their next meal is coming from? That that really seems to be, at least with uh, parts of North India that we saw, that seems to be the, the, the biggest pushback, really, is that the, the government is not doing enough to keep them fed. And but Isn't
1: that why we had voted and selected a leader to be the, to be a part of the government? So help us exactly. in the frame of
0: crisis. Yes, yes. Like, yeah, that's that's my point, really. Like, uh, I, I would completely agree with that. It has to be on the government to take care of these people. But it's an interesting debate that uh, that I feel has, again, been polarized into partisan groups in the U.S. And in India, it seems to be affecting a lot of day-to-day workers. So uh, do you have any input on this, Atulia? Uh, do you... Do you firmly believe it has to be health over economy
2: it is supposed to be health over economy but i understand the plight of those manual laborers all over the country um i think i don't know it's really sad to watch them but then health human life always plays a huge bigger role than the economy always according to me
0: yeah this i think this is where there the has to be some criticism of the government. Uh, I feel like they could have done a better job. And I also empathize with the limits as to where, how much the government can do. Uh, I think think they have been uh, rolling out rations. They have been trying to like do everything possible from from the government side of things. But yeah, I think this is something that we were definitely not prepared for. And I think it's taken most countries by surprise.
2: I feel like the southern states of India, like, uh, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, they have set up a lot of community kitchens. So even those people who are being, you know, passed over by central government schemes or, you know, their rations, I think people, rather the private, the people who have community kitchens, uh, other, other, um, just the general public are doing a huge uh, role in supporting those people
0: in mm. Kerala. Okay does seem to be all optimism from you guys' end. So it's really good to hear. And it's I have to say, it's a bit of a contrast from what I'm hearing from people around in the US. So it's really good to hear that. And talking about how this pandemic took us by surprise, uh, I really believe that that should not have been the case. So um, a pandemic like this was just bound to happen. If you looked at uh, what all the scientists were saying in the last two decades. and But why were we so underprepared? Why was nobody expecting this? Why were there shortages of ventilators? And why was uh, wet markets still a thing? Um, why do you think that we were so underprepared for this pandemic?
1: I think that we were, rather than underprepared, we didn't know what was coming. We knew something was coming, but we didn't know what was coming it going to be a respiratory illness. There going to be some other kind of illness. It was some major thing in being prepared. Hmm.
0: Interpolating this f- like forward, I, I I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me that this is not going to be the last global pandemic that we're going to be faced with. So how do we prepare for the next one? And I totally agree with you that there's no way to know or no way to expect what type of virus or bacteria we're going to see next but is there any way in which we could be prepared for the next one?
2: I think the response like the response of the public of the government should have been faster and I think it will be faster in the next coming pandemic so now because we have had an experience right now so I think people will be better prepared, uh, prepared about going into lockdown going into Complete shutdown, the economic going down. I think the government will be better prepared next time when it
0: comes. Hmm. Uh, is there anything that we can do to prevent the virus outbreak in the first place? Uh, do we have like uh, things that could stop happening? So the the easiest one for me would be wet markets. Are there like any other hotspots from which uh, we could stop these kind of global? I mean, uh, extremely virulent viruses from appearing so i have heard at least a few people suggest that the entire planet goes vegan i think that's a that's that's a bit that's a bit of an overreaction right there but would that actually make a difference
2: there is no way to stop a complete global pandemic there are going to be new organisms there are going to be new viruses new bacteria spreading out of nowhere even if you mm. stop all these wet markets what if a random bat comes and bites you? That's what happened with the Nipah virus uh, in 2019 in Kerala. Hmm. A random bat caused a huge. It didn't cause a pandemic because uh, people responded faster and contained it to just four or five people within the state. But what if it just it started the same way?
1: Hmm.
2: And viruses do keep mutating all the time. You can't stop it.
1: And the thing is, I don't think the next pandemic or even this, the last few pandemics, they haven't been bacterial, parasitic, or fungal, because all those the re- range of variations and mutations is so less that it can be treated with the same kind of medications we have now. Mm. The thing about viruses, the the mutation and the variations are dramatically different from one generation to the other.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what is this that I've been hearing about? Uh, a few people being involved with uh, developing a multi-spectrum viral vaccination uh, that works on multiple strands of the influenza virus. I think Bill Gates was involved in this. Is that? Is this something that we can see helping out moving forward or?
1: The thing about developing multi-spectrum and broad uh, broad spectrum uh, antibiotics or antivirals, is it leads way to resistance and tolerance, which will, will be the next topic as you were saying. Mm. The, d- the development of drug-resistant viruses and those things will be common when we have a broader spectrum and when these antivirals are used left and right mm-hmm.
0: you get more uh, drug resistant strands is yes. what you're trying to say right? yes okay yeah so I think that's a good segue right into uh, drug resistant bacteria so I think I had a conversation with my friend about 4 or 5 years ago ago about drug-resistant bacteria and how he feared that we're going to run out of efficient antibiotics to uh, you know uh, take care of these Uh, i think the global consensus or at least a lot of lot of people that i see on the internet seem to be worried about stagnation of antibiotic research and uh, and you know we might just have a super bug that is completely resistant to any kind of antibiotic we have. uh, How worried are you you about such a scenario? And is that something that people should be thinking about?
2: It's a very dire scenario, superbug formation, Uh, but we are taking a bit of measures to control it, to stop that rather. Um, Generally, antibiotics used to be available over the counter. You go to any pharmaceutical shop anywhere, You ask for an antibiotic, they'll happily give you. No questions asked. For Hmm. for any fever, common cold, people just go get an antibiotic. Um, Hmm. But now we don't prescribe antibiotics arbitrarily for any fever, common cold, any common infection. Only when, Hmm. um, only when a stage has been reached, like you know, basically antimicrobials. uh, Only when a stage has been reached, like you, the patient actually needs antimicrobials. We are prescribing them rather. Instead of just mm. arbitrarily giving it to any random
0: form they can have, it just comes into the rupee. Hmm. So I think the biggest complaint or the the biggest qualm people had with superbugs is that we seem to have stagnated in antibiotic technology in the sense like, I don't know if this is accurate, but I, I hear that we're still run, uh, most antibiotics are still based off of uh, penicillin. I think a lot of people seem to be pushing for research into a different approach to antibiotics. Uh, I I completely agree with your point uh, about uh, abuse of antibiotics and creating these superbugs in the first place. But how prepared are we for a superbug after it has already been created?
1: I don't think we're prepared for a superbug. Yeah, we are... Because the thing about the superbug is we don't know what it's going to be resistant to, right? Mm. And if, if we find a higher antibiotic to the one we have now, how can we hold it off until the superbug comes and not use it for a care for someone who has a disease now?
3: Mm.
1: Which is the biggest uh, dilemma here. Mm. Finding a medicine for something which we, for a disease which doesn't hasn't come yet is Seems like a good idea theoretically, but I don't think it can be done practically. First, mm. so the best way to go about handling a superbug or a drug resistance is uh, like reducing uh, abuse of antibiotics. And rather than the word of stagnation for antibiotic research, I think we have reached a saturation. You mm. know all all that is that about the bacteria. You know all the stages of its growth, and we have a antibiotic to kill it in every stage. I don't think that's a level. After this, in bacterial growth,
3: mm. I'm
1: glad and that's that... why, and that's why people have turned turned their heads towards viruses. Mm. Now, viruses are the next big thing, as per scientists and research.
0: Okay, I'm I'm just glad that the experts on this field are uh, much less alarmist than I am, and uh, you guys are more grounded than I am. I think. So, what do you guys think is the role of automation, machine learning? and artificial intelligence in medicine, uh, is it already being widely used? Uh, Where do you you guys see technology creeping into, uh, where do you see this kind of technology creeping into medicine in the coming decades?
1: I think that the next field which technology is going to enter is medicine. Because medicine is still one field which is mostly people-based, most, Mm -hmm. and has the biggest chance of error, human error. And I think the next biggest
3: okay a few seconds
1: okay the next big wave of uh, technology would be medical equipments and uh, medical trackers and those th- kind of devices. I'm uh, sorry, with healthcare. Mm.
0: And do you take the same same stance with you? Like, do you think uh, AI is?
2: I think they have a bigger role in surgeries rather than in medicine. Actually, uh, mm. because there's a high amount of precision with which. Of uh, AI can help with, like right now we do have robotic surgeries currently. In my hospital, we have uh, this uh, robot called Da Vinci and uh, this robot called Rosa, which help in all neurosurgeries basically because they are very precise and their arms are very small and they have a very high degree of mobility and rotation, so they can perform uh, cuts or you know anything which. A human hand can't possibly do. Hmm. So I just think there's a more head segue for surgeries, like very uh, like all microscopic surgeries to be done by robot uh, by AI rather than you know in diagnostics.
0: Hmm, that's that's an interesting point, and I also feel I think most of the current developments also agree with what you're saying. I think a lot of I think feels like radiology. There's a there's a lot of scope for uh, vision systems in ai that help you know they can identify tumors way more accurately than humans can as far as diagnostics goes i think i think i agree with you guys uh, i know i was when we had this conversation about a year ago i i was i took a different stance against siddharth i think uh it was like i, I strongly believe that even diagnostics could be done uh, uh could be automated but uh I've been thinking about it, and I think there's a little more nuance to uh, yes. diagnosis, especially uh, you know, patients coming in to see their doctor. I guess, but theoretically speaking, in the long run, I see diagnosis as basically information processing. Right? There's there's variables to be determined. Uh, you you have any kind of diagnosis of a disease is basically based on certain observations that you make on the patient. And if we have the technology to be able to do that, I feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility, maybe in the next 50, 60 years for that to become a reality. But uh, I I think I would agree with you that right now that's that's not the case. Uh, From the viewpoint of a doctor, what do you think is lost when you automate uh, certain things about medicine.
2: Yeah. When a patient comes to see you, basically in an OPD, I think a lot matters on how you treat, how you respond to the patient's queries. I don't think an AI or any machine can, you know, respond to the way, um, you know, the way a human does rather. Probably it could be even, uh, it could uh, be more uh, accurate But Mm. half the patient's problems go away when when you actually listen to him, uh, listen to him, say his problems, hear him out, you know, and that sort of is lost when you just go, you know, go go to a machine. And that Mm. human small talk, rather, I don't know what you'd call that, uh, is very important, I feel, when you're treating patients. That helps a lot hmm. in creating a rapport, in creating a bond. So the patient tends to listen to you more when you have a rapport with him. He uh, tends to uh, stick to his prescriptions. He tends to come back to you. He tends to listen to what we tell him and believe it more rather than some machine telling him, you know, what, you have this. You use this. That could be lost. Hmm. Compliance would be lost.
0: I, yeah, I think this was the... Exact same things that Siddharth told me when we had this conversation about a year ago. And has that changed, Siddharth?
1: Actually, I still do believe that. But I think a machine can be, uh, an AI can really be helpful in assisting a doctor during diagnosis. Unlike when I had the opposite thing of this, I believe a a machine can shortlist a few conditions which a doctor may have overseen or something, which may help the doctor have a better view of the disease the patient i mean and the, the other thing is it the thing about an ai doctor is that health is state of physical and mental well- well-being mm. and as we see the increase with the online doctors and people consulting google we see there's an increase in mental disorders mm. i think that the world is a community and you cannot live without other people mm. so i think just going to a doctor's check seeing a friend Maybe it's the contact you need to cure yourself, Melis.
0: That's a really interesting point there. Uh, okay, so now that you've quashed my fears about the AI taking over the world, uh, let's move on to something else. Uh, one thing that I've been uh, worrying about, especially in the post-COVID world, is that COVID might become a reason for governments to increase the rate of surveillance on people, right? So I think it's already being done in certain countries through uh, a mobile app. I think in South Korea, it it worked really well. It helped them uh, stop uh, curb the spread of the disease and flatten the curve really fast. So I believe, or I fear rather, that surveilling people might become the new normal in the post-COVID world. And this might not be all for the good, right? Like, um, I know we had this conversation slightly before we started this topic. And I do agree with what Atulia, what you said at the start about the fact that people are already doing doing it to themselves using fitness trackers and heart rate monitors and whatnot. My real My real concern is that we might live in a world where everything that you do is essentially like a huge job interview, right? A good example of this would be Angelina Jolie, who had a mastectomy because she carried the genes that was associated with a higher risk of uh, breast cancer. Now, in a world where constant surveillance of human genes is a thing, in that future, this kind of preemptive procedures might become the new normal, right? So if government agencies or any agency for that matter, has information on your genetics and they warn you that you have a higher risk of contracting a certain kind of disease maybe 30 years from now, and then you chose to ignore it, you might be deemed irresponsible in that society. Um, Insurance companies are going to hesitate to cover you. You might have problems getting bank loans and whatnot. So you're going to be looked at as an outcast in that society. I feel like this kind of continuous surveillance of one's health might not be for the good. And I feel like governments might use this global pandemic to push forward on this kind of surveillance. And I feel it might be intrusive to everyday life maybe 10 years from now. So. I don't know if you guys have uh, thought about this before, but I would like to uh, get your input on that.
1: Well, I think this brings us back to the biggest debate every medical student or medical professional has had with his mind and with his colleagues pro life or pro-choice. Hmm. So people who have the pro-choice attitude would say that this, this kind of surveillance is wrong and that I, I am allowed to do what I want with my life.
3: Hmm.
1: And uh, the thing is that, uh, people with this pro-life attitude can have this that, that attitude but they should not push this on the leftist crowd, as you say. Mm. So it's about being in harmony with what the other people choose to believe in rather than trying to push your agenda over the
0: others. Mm. Is this the same stance that you have, Atulia, Like, Yeah, it's a freedom
2: of choice rather. But then um, everyone, uh, I mean, we are inevitably, you know, surveilling your, ourselves and we are, you know, updating it in our apps or, you know, people have our medical records, it's all electronic nowadays, so anyhow, uh, anyhow, anyway people can get into what you, what they actually want, even if you are actually surveilling them, rather. Hmm. But then there are stringent laws against, you know, privacy as of now, but then, I agree with what Siddharth said actually, it's
1: freedom of choice mm. end of the day. I think that the pro-choice people should be allowed to have their choice unless their choice affects another person who is not read to them. Like in case of this pandemic, if you want to go around and have get the disease, but the problem is that if you might meet someone else and you transfer the disease to them, right? Mm. In any other case, if, if someone has, has a risk of heart disease says that I don't want to check myself, I'll just have, I'll live my life smoking, drinking and doing whatever I want. It's their Mm -hmm. choice and it doesn't harm anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. Unless it harms someone else, I think they must be allowed to do what they want.
0: Okay, I think that's I think that works for today's society, but my fear really is that health might be used as an excuse for mass surveillance in other aspects of life as well. Uh, One can easily imagine a world where self-driving, is the new norm and the government is constantly surveilling for human drivers and insurance companies may deem these people uninsurable but in an objective sense this seems like the way to go right yes constant surveillance of human health will make the world more disease-free enforcement of uh, self-driving cars will definitely bring down the number of car crashes but then where do you draw the line though where do you stop um, what if the government decides that a certain way of thinking is better than another? With with enough surveillance data on your social media feed, uh, the government can basically know what every one of its citizens are thinking and take actions based off of that. Uh, I've, I, I talked about this a little bit on my previous podcast, but, and, yeah, that's th- that, that's the punchline, really. Even if, surveillance is for the greater good uh the freedom of choice really gets disregarded here once you go into mass surveillance so the the dilemma really is between having an objectively higher quality of life versus your freedom again that that kind of uh, gets into a philosophical domain but yeah that's uh, that's something i've been thinking of so if you guys have any input on that, uh, we can talk about it or we can move on.
1: Yeah, I'd like to add something on that. I yep. don't think the corporate world is going to strike off from people who are pro-choice. I think they're going to have something like a higher premium to people with pro-choice attitude. Mm.
0: And they're yeah, still exactly. going to, to make that, money out of it. that, right? So there's, uh, there's, there's incentive to, to uh, live one kind of way over the other. So... Uh, yeah, that's that's really what what I fear. Like, external factors influencing the way that we lead our lives is uh, something I worry about.
1: So you don't think external factors are influencing the way you live now?
0: Well, it does. I guess the new baseline might be way higher in the future. Is what I'm trying to say. I guess.
1: And maybe that's the way we evolve. Hmm.
0: Okay. So I think this has been really informative. Uh, and I've learned a lot of things in the last hour or so. And I want to hand it off to you guys and on what what you guys are working on and what you guys think are going to be the biggest ba- breakthroughs in medicine moving forward in the next two decades or so. Uh, what you guys think are the, the biggest problems medicine is faced with in the coming years and any other input on that?
1: Okay, let me no. go. Hmm. I think the biggest problem that medicine not the problem, but medicine is trying to do something which I believe will be the problem to medicine again, which is genetically modified human beings. Hmm. Like trying to create a person without any kind of any kind of flaws as we see it now. Hmm. Uh, I think it's better to like identify the genetic makeup of a person and uh, correct it then, than trying to create the perfect gene. Hmm. And I also believe that the next stage in medicine is going to be uh, more of including technology into the human body, like bionics and uh, uh, neural implants and those kinds of things. Hmm. Because I, I think there there has been research about neural implants helping people with Parkinson's walk normally, people with the paralysis uh, able to being able to walk, which is I think is the next biggest thing in medicine right now.
0: Okay. I'm- before i have thulia a totally a talk on her part i think you made something that was too interesting for me to pass up on so uh about genetically modified humans uh so i think this kind of ties into what uh what i was saying before about uh making uh humans less less and less vulnerable to all kind of diseases and also I think if you genetically modify a human you can also actively make them superhuman right uh, have a higher IQ than anyone else and uh, the fear for me about most of this is that there might it might lead to this whole tier of humanity that is way more intelligent way stronger you know uh, resistant to all kind of diseases and I'd expect this to, uh, at least initially, only make it to people in power or uh, people who are rich, right? So uh, you, I, I expect society to be broken into this, you know, uh, class of superhumans and the rest of the world. And uh, this is, yeah, this is something that uh, I've been thinking about a lot, and I uh, fear about too. And so is there? any way we could stop this from happening? Is there, do you think it has to be government-imposed laws or uh, how do you think we should deal with this?
1: I don't think we would have to deal with this because as per history, any hybrid which has been created is uh, sterile or infertile. Mm-hmm. Like the mule, which is the hybrid of a donkey and a horse, is sterile, mm-hmm. it cannot produce it, so it reproduce. Uh-huh. Okay. So, anyway, a creation of a superhuman race would mean you can create a superhuman, but you cannot create a generation of also superhuman beings. Hmm.
0: Okay. So.
2: I don't think right now you have the ethical guidelines to even create, choose a gene over some other gene, basically, right now. Um,
1: That's true. We cannot choose the gender of your child, right, still?
2: Yeah. It's just just one chromosome. Yeah, the same way you can't choose, you want this characteristic in your child, you want your child to have blue eyes, you you want your child to have straight hair, you cannot choose that anytime soon, the coming future. Mm. There are are so many ethical dilemmas, ethical guidelines, it it becomes a huge ethical problem at the end of the day. And right now there are no guidelines and you are actually forbidden from doing genetic experiments on human beings. Like this, like you know, creating super, super races mm.
0: okay so what do you think uh, are the biggest things to expect in medicine moving forward Athalia?
2: I feel regeneration is gonna be a bigger thing coming in the future regeneration in the sense like you know instead of bionics as such mm. I, I'm i hoping to see like you know regrowth of what you've lost or faster healing times faster you know
0: like Deadpool uh-huh. basically <laughs>
2: Okay, that's how many we are going to say, it, but then yeah. It's more
1: into stem cell <laughs> research, the yeah. yeah. way yeah.
2: yeah. You can regenerate what you've lost rather than you know, using bionics and you know. I mean that's also pretty it's also pretty developing right now. that like you can see you know, in the past in, the, in ten years you can see bionics and all that. But what I'm expecting to see further than that is all the regeneration rather. Hmm. And then I expect people to live longer also in the coming days. I don't know why, but then yeah, I have seen people longer and look if, if, you had,
0: if you had been following our podcast I think a couple episodes ago we we did one on this uh, we imagined a world where the average life expectancy of humans is 200 or, <laughs> or I think we did we did double and uh, we were talking about what we would do if we had that long to live yes. so do you guys think that's an a- actual possibility okay,
2: 200 is a bit too long for the current scenario but then you know i but in the current average human life is 75. 75 for women, 72 mm. for the average Indian man. I think it will be by another 20 years, the average mm. person. I feel that's going to be a possibility.
0: It, that's a lot. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. So, do you guys have any anything else you want to bring up? Or we can start wrapping this up. I thought this was uh, especially uh, informative for me. I learned a lot of things. and. Uh, I hope the listeners will also get some kind of valuable input uh, from this podcast. So, do you guys have uh, anything else to bring up, or we can start wrapping up now?
2: That's about it, I guess.
3: Yeah, that's all.
0: Nice. Okay, so if I uh, if something else comes to my mind about medicine, um, I'm definitely gonna have you guys back on. And uh, it was a it was a pleasure to have both of you on, and thank you for being on again.